Hi, this is Patricia. And this is Christina. And this is What They're Worth. A podcast exposing the truths of everyday people who are willing to enter the beautiful mess of foster care and adoption. We're glad you're here. All right. Hello, everybody. As promised, it was not six months um, for our next episode to come out. We are taking advantage of the social distancing that is plaguing our nation by doing some Zoom conferencing for our um, interview today. That means, yes, Patricia and I are not together right now. Um, so Not in a closet, not on a bed, nowhere. Not here or there. You cannot find us anywhere. So... <laughs> So um, we are looking at each other through our computer screens, which is still cool. And we have a cool guest here for you today for episode 13. Um, I will let Patricia introduce her. Yes. So today we have Courtney on our show today, and she is an international adoptive mom. And I had the honor of hearing some of her story when um, we talked about her being on the podcast, and um, I think you guys will be very interested to hear her story because she has a unique perspective that we haven't yet had on the podcast, um, and adopting internationally and also adopting a child with special needs, um, and hearing all her ups and downs along the way. So without further ado, I will let Courtney tell us a little more about herself. Yeah, thanks for letting me join, guys. I really appreciate it. Um, as you mentioned earlier, I'm a loyal listener, so I'm excited to be a part of this. Um, so I live in the Charlotte area, and um, I'm an emergency manager for highly infectious diseases. So I have a very um, exhausting job right now. Um, but in addition to that, I am a mom to a beautiful little two-year-old. Um, we adopted him from India, and um, we've had him home for about nine months now. So... Um, yeah, we're just really excited to to be his parents. That's awesome. So what kind of got you interested in foster care or I guess adoption in this case? Um, when did you kind of know you wanted to adopt? Yeah, so I actually have felt called to adoption since I was a young child, probably around the age of five, my mom would tell you. Um, most people think that's a little bit crazy, but... I was that crazy person that when I met my husband and we were on our second date... I quickly and promptly told him that I was called to adoption, and if that wasn't in his plans, then that just means that God didn't want us to go on a third date. I do look back on that moment and think <laughs> I'm a little bit odd, um, and I sometimes wonder why my husband went on a third date with me then. Um, so joke's on him. Um, but yeah, he uh, responded very quickly and said, you know what, um, I grew up in a church that um, was really orphan-minded, and our pastors adopted um, and so it's something that's always been on my heart, um, but I definitely have an interest in having a biological kid as well. Um, and so at that point, I said, okay, well, I guess we can go on a third date. And so throughout our dating time, we um, continued to um, talk with their adoption and, and what that looked like for us. Um, and my husband is an engineer. And so once we got married, we made a plan that was a three-year three year to have kids plan. And because he's an engineer, he sticks to those plans. He sets a sets a goal, and um, we do not deviate from the plan. And so the goal was that we were 
going to first try to have a biological kid. And if we were able, then we would go down that <laughs> path. And then if we couldn't, then we would uh, just pursue adoption. But the whole time, God was really speaking to me in, in small ways that I was supposed to only adopt. But, you know, so I would kind of make jokes to my husband and say, hey, you know, we could just adopt two kids or three kids or whatever that looks like. Like, we don't have to have a biological kid. And he, every time he'd kind of giggle and say, well, that wasn't the plan. And that, you know, we, we've agreed upon that we absolutely are going to um, have a biological kid first, or at least try to have one. <laughs> and uh, so as, as we got closer to that three-year mark of when we would start trying to start our family, which was going to be May of 2018, because again, we have to keep to those dates. So in January of 2018, God really started to speak to me pretty, pretty loudly that, what are you doing? This is not what I've called you to do. Um, you know, I've called you to be an adoptive mom, um, maybe to several kids, maybe to just one, mm-hmm. but I've called you to adoption now. So I went to my husband and I shared that news with him. And um, I was actually on my way to Haiti um, to go to a friend's wedding who worked uh, for a company called Global Orphan. And uh, we were also going to be visiting some orphanages down there. And so he said, well, why don't you go to Haiti? And when you get back, we can we can chat about this. And I thought, you're going to send me to orphanages and you're going to have me go see these, these precious little faces. And then you want to talk about it? Okay, whatever. So I went on my way and, and I saw those, those little kids' faces and, and I came home even more empowered with the fact that that was what we were called to do. And I sat my husband down and said, hey, you know, we need to talk about this. And he said, I'm good with it. And I said, what, what do you mean you're good with it? And he said, well, I, uh, if I'm being honest, God told me three months ago, which would have been November of 2017, that, um, you know, that, that we're not supposed to have a biological kid, or at least not right now. Um, and I was like, oh, and he said, yeah, he wasn't, I wasn't listening to him. So he came to you. <laughs> um, and so at that point, we kind of started in our, in our journey and we, you know, looked at all avenues of adoption. So domestic, international, international from different countries, and just felt that God was calling us to international adoption at the time. So at that point, we um, met with a social worker um, through a, an agency that is local, um, less about the agency and more just about some friends that had adopted um, through that agency, but that had become good friends with this woman who was an advocate of all types of adoption. And so at that point, we had only really ruled out uh, birth adoption. Uh, so when we met with um, her and we talked about international adoption, uh, she shared with us that this particular agency works in 23 different countries. Um, and she put this grid in front of us that kind of went, broke everything down from cost to, um, you know, how long you'd have to be in the country, how many times potentially you would have to go, how long it potentially could be, the ages of the children, the severity of their illnesses. Um, so on and so forth. Um, and through that, we kind of, I initially looked at it and God spoke pretty clearly again to me and said, the baby's in India. Um, and so I told my husband, the baby's in India. And because he is an engineer, he thought I was a little bit crazy and said, well, we need to do a pros and cons list and we need to look at all of these countries. And um, once he did his pros and cons, we narrowed it down to China or India. Um, and he said, well, we need to take a couple more weeks to think about this. 
And of course, we can't stop the, start the adoption process until May because that's when we said we were going to start our family. And so we cannot start before that. Uh, and so I waited and I said, well, that's fine. You can continue to, you know, go through your pros and cons and pray about it. But I'm telling you, the baby's in India. Um, and so a couple of weeks later, he came to me and it was um, beginning of May. And he said, you're right. The baby's in India. Um, and so we started the process into India. So every country uh, looks a little bit different when it comes to adoption. Um, so I can only speak very intelligently about India. However, I know a little bit about some other countries. Um, but India and China definitely are, you know, two of the the places that people are adopting probably the most from right now in international um, spaces because First of all, they have both of them have equally the largest populations of orphans in the world. So they have 20 million each. Um, right. And those are just kids that are accounted for within the system. Yeah. Um, that was one of the reasons wow. my husband felt led to India beyond just, you know, that God was telling me the baby was in India was just that the amount of, of children in need there um, that, you know, and the, that doesn't include children on the streets or children that potentially, you know, are in situations that just aren't within the system. So it could be, it probably is much larger than 20 million, to be honest. And so India has a, a pretty um, streamlined process, um, which was interesting to us, as well as they estimated only 10 to 14 days in the country, which is the same for China as well. I think ultimately China was Nick's aid for my husband's list because of the fact that um, you have to be 30 years old to start the adoption process there. And at the time he was not 30. Um, so that, that would have delayed our process longer as well. This is totally uh, new to me because I am totally unfamiliar with the international mm. adoption process. I'm very encouraged to hear that there is a such thing as a breakdown of all those different things. Cause I think that's something even when my brain has entertained it, that I'm like overwhelming, like <laughs> how would you even pick? Like there are so many countries and like too many tabs and like, there's so many different rules and like, yeah, I would, and I'm not an engineer, but I would have a really hard time other than God giving me a direct revelation or just closing my eyes and spinning a globe and just being like, where's my hand end up? Um, what do you remember? Like how crazy is the range even in like price and timing and like, is it really varied or is it close? Yeah. Um, the prices and, and the time vary a lot. And so, um, you know, I can't speak exactly, but I want to estimate there are a few countries in Eastern Europe that are in the lower 20,000 range. And then um, I know South Korea is the highest, and I believe it was around $54,000. So, and I'm not sure why, you know, the variance happens that way. Um, I know our agency fees are the same no matter the country. So it must be something on the actual uh, country side of, of things. And so this might be a dumb question, but who do you give the money to? And did you give it all right away? Yeah, no, that's a great question. No, so you don't give it all right away. Um, for our agency, all of it is funded through the agency or, you know, given through the agency um, because there's something called the Hague Treaty. So the Hague Treaty is a international treaty that 
just really helps protect kids and um, helps keep down trafficking of children through checks and balances, essentially. And so it's important that you're working with an agency that's Hague accredited, as well as, you know, that the country you're adopting through, not that it has to be Hague accredited, um, but there'll be more assurance that there, you know, won't be as many potential issues of, of knowing exactly the past of your child and things like that. Um, not that there still can't be situations um, that are devastating, of course. So anyway, so and, and you know, within that, there's rules that they can't ask you for money directly um, and things like that that are protected. And so all of the money is filtered through your agency. Um, and so, for example, for India, um, I believe our agency fees were around 13500 um, and they had a three different installments um, and then your home study as well. Now everybody can go through their home agency for a home study, depending on where, you know, if you don't have a local, like our agency, thank God, has a, a local office here. And so they are, they could do our home study as well. But um, some people that live, for example, I know a couple in Minnesota that uses our agency and they had to find a local home study agency to do that. So you have that fee as well. And then um, for India, towards the end of once you match with a child and you're you're ready to fully pursue a you know a particular child, then there is a five thousand dollar fee that's sent to the orphanage that helps cover the care that they've incurred for their for caring for that child, um, which in in reality, especially for my child, is is pennies considering some of the things that he's had, um, some of the medical things he's had done. Yeah. Interesting. That's, that's really interesting. I really didn't have, I mean, people always talk about how expensive international adoption is. Uh, and actually people tend to think that about like any adoption, you know, people are like adoption equals expensive. That's like just something that people think. So yeah, I never really thought about it before. Like, are they just like, yes, please write a check for $50,000 and send that over here or like credit, you just send a credit payment over um, so it's kind of spaced out among different places in the process. And most of the agencies, I want to encourage people that most of the agencies, when you do, um, you look at, you know, the total cost, especially our agency, I can speak to for sure, but I, I've seen on other websites as well, that includes the travel cost. Um, and so, I mean, our travel cost was, you know, I think it was close to twelve thousand um, dollars. And so, when we're talking about our adoption was thirty-eight thousand dollars. You know, twelve of that was just our our travel expenses and um, bringing home our son, like his plane ticket and all of those things. Um, and you know, you don't get a lot of notice when you go to fly over there, so the plane tickets are quite expensive. Right. Hmm. Yeah, that's helpful. So you decided on India, you picked India. Then what happens? So, um, yep. So then we started going down the India process. So we first made our home study, um, just like, you know, any adoption process would. And then once you finish your home study process, um, you register in something called CARINS, which is the um, national database for India. Um, and then you kind of start that waiting game that we've all heard about um, in the adoption mm -hmm. world. And that can range in India from a few days to get India approval to months and months. Mm. Um, and there's actually no rhyme or reason to it, at least that anybody has ever been able to figure out. <laughs> and so um, we had about a 12 week wait um, until we got our approval. Um, and then in India, once you're approved, then you can, you're eligible to match with a child. 
And so we actually received a file the same day that we got our approval because our agency had actually, so kids um, get uploaded to the database there as they become available for adoption. And as they, as they become available, the agencies and the process has changed slightly now since we adopted, but um, now even the parents can see into that portal and see all of the children. And so our agency had actually seen this little boy, um, our son, and in June, when we very first <laughs> signed up for the program, and they started praying that that was our son. So one of the cool things about our agency is they pray all together um, each day at the beginning of at 8.30 every morning for each family individually. And they were just praying that that little boy would still be there when we got our approval. We didn't know any of this. This was all <laughs> unbeknownst to us. But so they called us that morning and said, you know, we've got great news. You've been approved uh, for the India process. And uh, we actually have a file for you, which does not happen for everybody that, you know, on the same day you get the the file as well. But we were fortunate to do that. And so India is a special needs program. You can go on the healthy track if you would, um, if you desire that, but it's, that's a years and years and years worth of waiting, um, mostly because they prioritize uh, domestic couples um, or individuals to adopt um, healthy children first. Um, and so we had, down, go down, had gone down the mm -hmm. special needs track, um, which most people do that um, adopt from India internationally. But in, um, special needs can range in India anywhere from, honestly, a birthmark, um, skin tone, all the way to severe needs um, that can be physical, mental related. Um, it just, it, the range is so, so crazy. Um, and so when you very first start the home study process, you fill out your special needs list. And that special needs list is issued through your agency. And so our agency had about, was about three pages long of different medical conditions or, or physical conditions. And for me, um, I'm a medical professional and I have a lot of experience. I'm also a respiratory therapist in addition to an emergency manager. So I have a lot of experience with kids and, and physical needs. And so as I was going through this list, I had a lot of heartache as I was filling it out because all it is is they list a condition and then it's yes, no, maybe. So for example, it's major heart conditions. Yes, no, maybe. Minor heart conditions. Yes, no, maybe. And so for somebody like me, you know, there's a difference between heart conditions. There's a difference even between major heart conditions. And so when we very first filled, out, filled that out, I called my husband, or I mean, I called our agency and asked them, um, you know, how am I supposed to fill this out? Because it's, you're, you're trying to say that, you know, example, an ASD is the same as a single ventricle anatomy. Like, these are not the same thing. And you're trying to tell me that they're the same thing on this paperwork. And our agency kind of laughed and they said, well, you know, most people have the opposite problem and they're overwhelmed by the list because there's just so many medical conditions on it. And they don't know, you know, how to even begin to process all of these different medical conditions. But, and I, and they said, but it sounds like you're overwhelmed because it's not specific enough. And I said, well, I am. And so they said, well, if you'd like to make, you know, additional notes for us, you can do that. And so I still have the paperwork. I filled it out and we said yes to probably 95% of that three-page list. And we just said no to a few conditions that either, you know, maybe we couldn't accommodate because of our house, for example, um, the, the layout of our house or um, something like that. But one of the things that we said no to, we said yes to major heart conditions, but no to, I typed in there, single ventricle anatomy. And honestly, I did this because I worked in a cardiac um, pediatric unit at Duke University Hospital for a couple of years. And I, I knew the needs and the amount of care that it took 
to care for these children well. And I truly in my heart of hearts believe that my husband and I were not capable of doing that and caring for a child well. And so I told my husband that and he said, you know, you're the medical expert. I'll just follow your lead on this. So when we got the call about our son's file, what they do, what our agency typically does is they kind of like read some of the file to you. And then they say, you know, would you like to reserve this file? So the matching process in every country looks different. But in India, once you match with or once you reserve a file, you have 30 days to review that file. I know in China, it's much, much less time. Um, so that's something to consider and maybe ask agencies when you're looking into different, into different countries because that time period can be kind of intense, you know, speaking with doctors and things like that. So, but in India, it's 30 days. And so our agency, you know, read some of the file to us and she said, this little boy has dextrocardia, um, which means that the heart is backwards. And so I knew that and I knew that, um, you know, 50% of people with dextrocardia don't have anything else physically wrong with them. They just, some people can live that way and don't even know that they have that condition. But, you know, another 50% have other heart defects with it. Um, but they didn't share that with us. And uh, and so I said, yeah, you know, let's let's take the file. Or let's look at the file. <clears throat> so at that point, we reserved the file. My, so they sent out, they began to send over the file. And before they sent it, we got off the phone and my, our social worker called us back or called me back, I should say, because my husband and I are both at work and said, you know, would you like me to send the pictures with the file? And I said, well, of course. And so over they sent this file and something happened. There was a glitch in the system when they were doing that. And only half of the file like showed up when there was just a, a problem with the system. And so we had very little information that came over and it was mostly um, all of the notes from the cardiologist there. And um, I uploaded, you know, I remember being at work and I opened up the file and it was exactly what we said we couldn't take. Um, it was, it was bad. And it was a single ventricle anatomy. And so he had dextrocardia with other defects um, that ultimately made a single ventricle anatomy. But then they sent the pictures and it was one of the cutest little boys I've ever seen in my life. And I know I'm biased, but you know, even then I can tell you he was one of the cutest little boys ever. And so my husband calls me and he's like, this, he's like, I'm not a medical professional, but this does not seem good. And I said, it's not, you know, this, we, we can't do this. We, you know, we were not equipped for this. And he said, and why did they send us these pictures of the cutest boy in the world? And I, at that point, I had to fess up uh, that I was the one that actually approved that. But ultimately, we really believed that that was God because we needed to see him. Um, we needed some extra help just to realize that, you know, he was our son. And so, you know, I, I believe deeply in that quote that David Platt says something about, you know, once you know the orphan's name, and in this case, you see his face, I think, you know, he becomes a person to you. And it's not just about, you know, some file. It's, it's a human being. And so we needed that and God knew that. But over the next four days, at this point, we, you know, we still really believed that we, we couldn't take care of him and that it wasn't right for us to match with him if we couldn't take care of him. Mm-hmm. And so that night, um, one of one of the somebody in our agency that had adopted a little boy and gone through quite a lot of different things with him uh, reached out to me, you know, just shared mm-hmm. with me, hey, Nobody ever talks about how hard the matching process is. And I just want to let you know that I'm praying for you. And she was right. Nobody talks about that. Um, Everybody makes the matching process seem, for lack of a better term, like sexy. 
and a and a beautiful process. And up until you finally say yes, it is it's not. It's an emotional roller coaster. Uh, and adoption in general is emotional roller coaster, but but especially that matching process, it's it's really difficult. And people make it seem like it's you know the most exciting part, um, and it's not. So um, I was glad that she reached out to me, and I said, well, you know, you're absolutely right, but how did you know? Like how how did you you know decipher which child was yours? And they were actually in the process of adopting a second child. And she said, you know, she said my husband and I really just believe that we could, God would send us a file that that he knew we could care for. And so if we couldn't care for the child, if we couldn't physically meet their needs, then then that meant that, um, you know, we should never say yes because that's not fair to the child and their, his or her parents are out there somewhere. But if we could, then, then that was our, our child. And so it was a really important conversation and something that I still believe, you know, really helped us get to adopting um, our son. And um, so I told my husband that conversation and, and he was like, you know, well, that that's good information, but I don't know if we can do this. Um, and so we, you know, we just started praying and, and each day, um, and like I said, we didn't have the whole medical file. So we were still waiting for that information to come in and we were just praying that when we got that information, it would be better. Mm-hmm. And that maybe there was a mistake or, or maybe, you know, the initial echocardiograms were showing something wrong or, um, you know, just, just something. And we were just so hopeful. And so each day, God showed us something that um, he had been preparing for us, us as a couple and us individually for 10 years for this. Um, and so one of them was, you know, financially, you know, to adopt a, a child with special needs at this level is very financially taxing. Um, and we had recently become debt free other than our house. Um, and and then also, you know, you have to be close to a cardiac, a good pediatric cardiac hospital. Um, and we, you know, only live like 12 minutes by ambulance um, to Levine Children's Hospital, which is a great institution. And so we started to recognize those things. And then I still have a lot of friends and contacts in the cardiac pediatric world. And um, God started to, you know, show us, hey, you still have friends in these areas. And I've kept these people in your life to help you. So it was just very evident. And each day, my husband and I got softer and softer to this process. And I mean, we so badly wanted to say yes. It was just, you know, was saying yes right for our son. So on Friday, so Tuesday, we received the file. And four days later on Friday, we got the rest of the file finally. And I remember opening the email. And before I did, I prayed. I was like, God, please just let the file be better. And um, it wasn't, to be honest with you. If not, it was somewhat worse. We found out he had had one of the surgeries that he needed, which was important. And he was doing well after the surgery. But we did find out that in addition to having all these cardiac problems, he also had likely did not have a spleen, um, which meant that, you know, he was susceptible to different infections that could be very, very serious for him, which also meant a bigger picture that he could have something else called heterotaxy syndrome, but they hadn't diagnosed him with that in India. And so there was just a lot of unknowns. But if you want to move forward at that point, um, most countries, and I think it's I think it's actually a Hague requirement, but I'm not positive. But I know most countries require you to consult with a uh, a physician so that they have documentation that you have have a full understanding of these medical conditions, so you're not saying yes and to something that you're unaware of. And so most people do this through pediatricians, or there's even something called international adoption clinics. There's I think four or five of them in the country, 
And no matter where you can live, you can send the file to these places and they can consult with you for a fee, of course. But I told my husband that, you know, we, we cannot have a pediatrician just look at this or any kind of general doctor. We have to have a skilled cardiologist give us the down and dirty of, of what we were looking at. And so at that point, I started working, um, reaching out to my Duke contacts, the physicians I used to work with. And they did get back to us, but it took a little bit uh, longer. But I was able to call one of my re- really good friends that works at Levine's and worked at Duke with me at the time and asked her, hey, do you happen to know anybody that you know could do this, could look at this file? And she said, you know what? I have, I'm friends with one of the cardiologists. Let me call him. So she called him and not even five minutes later, she texted me back and said, he said to send him the file. Um, and I work in the system um, that for Atrium Health. And so when I went to go send him the file over email, it popped up that he was on PTO. <laughs> and uh, I just thought, oh no, he's not going to be able to look at this. Or if he does, you know, I'm interrupting his time. And I just felt terrible about the whole thing. And I thought, you know, it's going to be days before he gets back to me. And while we had that 30 days, my husband and I felt very convicted to be quick about our decision um, because, you know, we knew that that his file was being, you know, taken off that Karin's um, database. And so he couldn't match with other people. And we didn't want to hold him back from from matching with other people if, you know, if we weren't his parents. Um, and so we felt we needed to move quickly. And so lo and behold, this cardiologist called me 10 or 15 minutes later. It was amazing. And he and I said, you know, I'm so sorry. I know that you're on vacation. And he said, I am on vacation, but this is so much more important. Don't even worry about that. And he said, you know, Courtney, I'm going to speak very frank with you. And I'm going, you know, to tell you everything. And I said, please do, you know, don't don't sugarcoat this. And he said, well, I want to start with it doesn't get any worse than this when it comes to the heart. And I said, OK, well, that's a good place to start. Um, and he said, but, you know, let's talk through that. And he so he gave us some very grim statistics. And wh- I guess one of the things I didn't mention, um, my husband, you know, while he doesn't he didn't have you know as much medical knowledge as I did, one of his things that he had discussed with me was he really just, um, you know, didn't want to match with a child that potentially had a high uh, death rate or, you know, mortality rate for the reasons that he just didn't want to have to go through the heartache of, you know, going through this long process to bring home a child that could potentially pass away on us. And I respected that and I completely agreed. And But Chauvet had both of those things, to be honest. And so he had this this heart condition that, you know, I didn't think we were equipped for. And, and then he had a, a potentially um, fatal, fatal illness. Um, and so this doctor gave us those grim statistics and he said, you know, best case scenario, he said he absolutely will need a heart transplant. Um, he'll go through another heart surgery. And then um, he said, if we're lucky, we will, and everything goes well, um, and we can get him to his 20s or 30s before we do a heart transplant, because heart transplants only last 13 to 17 years right now. So if he got one today, he would have to have, you know, four or five in his lifetime in order to live a full lifespan. Um, so we want to preserve his current heart as long as we possibly can. And so he said, but, you know, you know, he could also get married and have kids. And he said, that's not out of the question. Um, so we talked about, you know, the, the scary things and we talked about, you know, the happy things and, and then all of a sudden at the end of the conversation, he got really quiet and he said, um, ma'am, would it be okay if I gave my opinion? And I said, absolutely. And guys, when I say, I thought that he was about to tell me, 
that that he was going to say, don't, don't do this. I just really believe with my entire heart that that's what he was about to tell us. And he said, you have to go get this little boy. He needs you, and I think you can take care of him. And so instantly I was crying, and, you know, I just knew in my heart of hearts that, you know, who could get a cardiologist on the phone in 10 minutes, 10, 15 minutes to um, do that? Of course, he did it for free, which, um, like I said, those consultations are quite expensive. Um, He did it on his vacation time, and I said, well, sir, I said, if we brought him home, I said, would you be his cardiologist? And he said, I'd be honored to be part of this story. And for me, that was just the right there. That was the ceiling factor because I said, you know what? He already has a cardiologist here, like just waiting for him to come home. This is huge. My husband wasn't on the phone. I'd taken detailed notes for him. So I got off the phone and I called my husband and I shared everything that the cardiologist had said. And I didn't want to give my opinion because I just wanted to make sure that we were on the same page. And so I said, well, what do you think? And he said, you know, honey, I know that I had said, I'm going to get choked up. Um, But I know that I had said that I didn't want to bring home a child that could potentially pass away on us. And he said, you know, not that I ever want that to happen. He said, but I can live with that now. He said, what I can't live with is this little boy going through another heart surgery without his parents. We have to go get him. And so that was on a Friday and we said, you know, let's, let's take the weekend to just think through this to make sure and pray through this to make sure that we're doing the right thing um, and not making a rash decision. And so on Sunday, which was happened to be Orphan Sunday, November 11th, uh, we signed his papers uh, to become his parents. So it was pretty exciting. I just learned so much about the process of international adoption. And I got goosebumps <laughs> when you talked about the cardiologist and saying, you had to go get him. That was just how God, you said like who could get cardiologists on the phone in 10 to 15 minutes. God did. <laughs> like he, he did. That is so cool. Okay. So then what happened? One of my biggest <laughs> prayers was, um, you know, God, I, you know, I don't, I don't want to make a decision and then ever waver on that decision. I don't want to feel if we say no, I don't want to, you know, think to myself, oh, should we have said yes or vice versa? And, um, and that was just my biggest prayer. I didn't want to have one doubt in my mind. And so after we sent in the papers, um, each day for the next three days, something happened to solidify you guys did the right thing. And one of them being that our cardiologist, um, that is his cardiologist today, got cardiologist of North Carolina for the year that very next day. Um, and so it was just God telling us again, yep, you guys did the right thing. This is exactly what I've called you to do. Um, and then looking back, remember I told you guys that my husband said that in November of 2017 was when he really felt like God had, was calling him to just adopt, uh, but he wasn't listening while well, our son was born in November of 2017. So that's why he was calling us to that. It's pretty special. Um, so once that happened, we started um, the process of then pursuing our son, um, and there's multiple steps. And again, every country looks different. Um, and even within India, there are, I believe, 29 states. Um, and each state kind of has its own process. And sometimes even each orphanage has its own process uh, to some extent and how they file the paperwork and all of that. So thankfully, our son was at actually a very good, um, for lack of a better term, because I still don't think orphanages are a good place for kids. But if there's such a thing, our son was at a very a good orphanage that took good care of him and good care of his his cardiac condition, all things considering. And so they were quick to you know file his all of the paperwork that they needed. 
And so we got through the next couple steps pretty quickly. Um, and then we had to enter the court process. And um, the court process can, it ranges vastly, even in, within each state, there's a court in each city and those judges have the final say. Um, and it's a really scary thing because we have some friends in the India process that the judge um, just doesn't agree with international adoption or maybe doesn't agree with Caucasians adopting Indian children or, or what that looks like. And there's been people that have been denied, which is scary. Um, and then they have to go through a longer process to try to get through those hurdles. But our judge um, was a, he's a really good judge. He had the children's int best interest at heart, but he didn't understand uh, why people would adopt kids with special needs. And so he really believed from what we learned that maybe people were doing things to these kids or, or we're not exactly sure, but we, he didn't, he didn't think that they were being treated properly. Um, and so he was reluctant to push people through the court system. And we knew that. And so it was on average taking people about five months to get through that process of court. We, so we had our cardiologist write a letter to the judge just explaining his heart condition and how serious it was um, and how important it was to get him home as soon as possible. And so he wrote that letter to him. And lo and behold, we were the first international family to pass court, or the only one actually, in seven weeks in this state um, or in this um, with this judge. Yeah, so super special. We, <laughs> we had friends that, that we pushed you know, ahead of them, which we felt bad about, but they understood why. <laughs> So yeah, so we brought our son home. We went to travel to go get him in June of 2019, which was last June. So he's been home for nine months. Yep, it just just got wow. to nine months. And the actual process of, of traveling was was very challenging. Um, and again, I think that maybe some, this isn't something people talk about enough in the international adoption world. And I mean, there is the magicalness to, to traveling to go get your child, don't get me wrong. Um, but... My husband and I are very well internationally traveled. I've even lived abroad before. And so I think maybe we went in a little too confident uh, looking back on it. And we knew that the attachment side would be difficult, especially uh, because our son was in a good orphanage. And so we knew he likely was attached, had good attachment to his caregivers, which long term, that's a good thing. Um, but in the short term, it makes attachment um, very difficult because they're attached to their caregivers. So we knew that going in, and we, so we knew that was going to be a hurdle, but we didn't expect the actual countryside of things um, being such big hurdles for us to jump over while we were in India. And so we traveled there. Uh, once we got there, it was uh, the hottest place I've ever been to. It was 115 degrees, um, which I didn't even know was possible, but um, it's very hot. And there have been people that have asked me, was that weather without humidity? And I'm like, First of all, 115 degrees is just hot, but it was with humidity. So yeah, so that was that was challenging. But beyond that, you know, our son had this this major heart condition, and so we had to be very careful with him as well. And it was scary too because you know we didn't have a great grasp on. We just couldn't wait to get back to the United States to have our doctors give a get a full wow. um, report on how he was doing and you know what interventions we needed at the time and all of that. And so we just felt like we had to be extra careful. So attachment was was difficult. Um, my son attached to me. I mean, he attached to me, but it was more of just a death grip. So once he lost his his caregivers at the orphanage, he all of those people were women, and so he hadn't really been around very many men. So a lot of um, international families that adopt from orphanages see that that the kid will usually attach to one person, not the other one. In this case, it was it was me. 
and he wanted me to hold him 24-7 standing. I could not sit down, um, which was challenging. And so I went from, you know, never holding a kid to him wanting to me to hold him nonstop and I couldn't put him down. So that was difficult. Um, and then on top of that, because he was just so upset about the entire thing, he was having emotional diarrhea and, you know, soiling his clothes, soiling us. Um, and since you're traveling internationally, you don't bring a lot of extra clothes. Um, so then the cost of everything was, was difficult because we were staying in nice hotels to try to, you know, just help with, with acclimating, I guess. And like our hotel for two hard boiled eggs was $10 just for hard boiled eggs. And you've already spent, you know, $12,000 on this trip. And so you're trying to, you know, cut anywhere you can. And so that was challenging. And then on top of that, I got food poisoning, um, which, which really just sweetened the already bad situation because, you know, he, my, my son did not want anything to do with my husband. And so here I am getting sick on the bathroom floor and he's screaming outside of the bathroom, um, just wanting me to hold him. So that was difficult. Um, and then another aspect was all of these medications that my son was on um, for his heart were all in pill form. Like, I guess they just give adult dosages there and then they, you know, just cut the pills. So no lie, one of the pills had to be cut into 10 different parts. And so we're in this tiny little um, hotel room. It's like the size of a New York style hotel room. And my husband is sitting on this little bitty desk making lines and he looks up to me and says, I've never done cocaine in my life, but I'm pretty sure this is what doing cocaine looks like. So it was just, it was hard. It was the hardest probably 10 days of our lives. Um, so yeah. And then um, we ended up getting to come home a couple days early. We came home, you know, flew home and um, everybody asks about, you know, flying with a child that you've just adopted. Um, on an international flight and what that looks like. And I had asked a friend before I left and she gave me some good advice and I'd like to pass this advice along to everybody. She said, it's just going to be the worst 12 hours of your life. Just know that. And it's true. And you have to ignore everybody around you as your child is screaming and they're giving you looks like, can you please shut that child up? And you just, you just don't even look at them. That's my best advice. So we got home and our son was really, really sad when we were in India and just really struggling with a lot of emotional things because his whole world had just um, been stripped away from him. And, and I don't think a lot of people really think through that process. And everybody sees that adoption day is such a beautiful thing. And, um, you know, if you think mm -hmm. at it from, from the kid's perspective, especially when they're young, honestly, because they don't understand what's happening. And so, you know, to our son, it was like, these people just came and kidnapped me. I've never even seen white people. And people that don't even look like us just came and just took me. Um, and so that was difficult. But once we got home, he actually stabilized almost in 24 hours. Um, he was like a whole new kid. He was happy, laughing. It was just like, yep, I'm home now. So that was a really great thing to see. Um, and then over the next four weeks, um, he did his, so a lot of, a lot of kids in adoption and foster care um, that have trauma, have a lot of eating struggles, which I know you guys know of all different kinds. And, but a, usually that manifests in overeating um, or hoarding food or those types of things. And, you know, some of these kids can struggle with this for years and years and years. Um, and initially our son was overeating. Um, and I noticed once he started to attach to my husband, 
about four weeks after we got home and started to trust him, it was almost like, okay, I know these people are going to feed me and I'm super stressed out and I don't know how to express that because I'm so young. And so he started to deny food and it started in the beginning as just a picky eating um, situation and really, you know, almost just like a normal kid in the beginning, like, oh, no, I don't want that. No, I don't want that either. I want this. Um, And each day it got worse and worse and worse. And it became one of our hardest seasons yet. And I'm sure we're going to have harder seasons, especially as we tackle, you know, his next heart surgery and such. But it was not, it was not a pretty time in our house because every single meal was basically war. And, you know, you were trying your best not to make it you know, seen because you knew that, you know, that all the studies say that you don't want to like force, you know, obviously you don't want to force feed a kid, but, but, you know, even just put too much emphasis on it and you want to do this. And I tried to read all the books and the feed me and love me and, you know, all these different guides with no, nothing was helping. And it was just getting worse and worse and worse. And it was one of the most isolating times I've ever experienced because everybody around me, you know, they had their good intentions, but they all very much had an opinion about it and just, you know, well, have you tried to give him this or have you tried to give him that? Or, you know, I don't understand why doesn't he just eat? He's not like, and our son was extremely small. So he was only 18 pounds and he was 22 months old at this point. Um, so he's, you know, very much underweight and I, we couldn't explain it. And, you know, as a mom, you know, my husband being the engineer was just like, well, you know, it is what it is. Like he's just struggling with this and, you know, didn't seem to have much anxiety around it. But me as a mom felt like I couldn't even get my kid to eat. Like that's just the bare minimum of existing. Yeah. I think that um, there are so many unique needs that come up with kids that are adopted from all these different situations. And I think it's really easy for people because I've experienced this to people that are just not familiar and even if they know adoption like that doesn't mean like I know adoption to a degree and I've never been through half of what you're saying so I'm not an expert at all you know and there's a lot of times people are like very well-meaning when they give us advice but it can really be like hurtful and can like make you feel really bad about yourself as a parent because you're like does everyone know how to do this except me like, is this obvious or something? Because, I mean, I know people, like, with my son who really struggled. Do you have him on medicine? Does he have a therapist? Like, things that, and it's really hard not to be like, yes, duh, of course, I'm doing that. Um, And you know that people are well-meaning, but I feel like that's really, like, a reason why it's important for us to have people in our circles who understand even if we have to get so like other people whose kids have heart conditions other people who are internationally adopted like there's a lot of different ways you can come at it but making sure you have a community and have a support of other people with shared experiences goes such a long way yeah I completely agree and to be honest I still have not found um, a community of you know, anybody that's adopted, adopted, plus a severe special need that's potentially terminal. I still haven't, don't have a friend in that field. I have a, a cardiac mentor family, um, and they've been so helpful. 
and, you know, walked us through so many things, but they haven't had to deal with the adoption trauma, you know, in addition to the, the cardiac stuff as well. Um, so if you're out there and you live in the Charlotte area, hit me up. I'd love to be friends. Yeah, definitely still needing that in my life. But yeah, as that got worse and worse and worse, we eventually, we took him to the cardiologist just for his normal visit. And our cardiologist um, told us, you know, his heart looks great, but I'm really concerned about this problem. And if um, if you, if he doesn't get this under control, if we don't get this under control really quickly, you know, he's going to have to get a feeding tube um, placed. And at the time that scared the living daylights out of me, even though I knew from a medical standpoint, it wasn't that big of a deal. I just felt like he looked like a sick kid then. And, you know, he didn't actually look sick other than just being small. And so it just, it really weighed on me heavily. And then he also said, you know, if we can't get him to 33 pounds before he goes into heart failure, because every day his heart is failing a little bit more and more and more, then he's just going to have to get a transplant. And if he has to get a transplant, we can't get him to his next surgery, then he's going to need multiple transplants. And you know where that goes, Courtney. And so I think my husband and I left that cardiology visit mm-hmm. um, like deer in headlights. And we just, you know, we went home that night and, and then a few nights after that. And I think we tried our best not to bring stress to the situation. And we no longer just could do that because we were super stressed at this point. We perpetuated the situation, to be honest. I mean, some of it was our fault for sure at this point. And Chevet eventually, uh, a couple of days later, he just basically went on a hunger strike altogether. Um, he just was so stressed out and he just said, you know what? that's it. I'm just not going to eat anymore. Um, and then the next day it was okay. I'm not going to eat or drink. Um, and I remember my husband calling me, um, and he was like, you know, I've been home with our son all day. He said, I have literally tried to feed him every single piece of food that we have in our pantry or our fridge. And he has not had more than 150 calories all day long. He's like, and I think he's had one ounce of water since I've been home. Um, and I, I should have taken a picture because when I got home, no lie, every single piece of uh, food that we owned was on the countertop. Um, and my husband, you know, being the engineer and the guy that's just so happy-go-lucky, he looked defeated for the first time. And so he looked at me and he said, I don't know what else to do other than just put our kid to bed hungry. He's like, and I hate to do that, but I, I, he just won't eat anything. And so we put him to bed hungry. Um, not that he had had a lot to eat the night before, the nights, you know, before this, but I mean, this was like, literally, he didn't have anything to eat or drink. Um, and then the next day we woke up and my mom was his nanny at the time. And she called me and she was like, um, you know, his diaper, it's not completely dry, but it's, it's like barely wet. And he's on lots and lots of um, diuretics that make him urinate a lot. Um, and so that was, you know, very alarming sign. And so a couple hours later, I ended up taking him to the emergency department. And what we, when we got there, the nurse, and at the whole time, I was like, I don't know if I'm doing the right thing. Because he was acting okay. He wasn't even acting sick. Um, and usually when a kid is that dehydrated, you know, they they are lethargic or they're, you know, super cranky. And he just wasn't because he's just a happy kid for the most part. And um, sure enough, we get there. The triage nurse was said, you know, he looks great. I think he's just a little dehydrated. We'll probably just give him an IV, but it'll be fine. And then they took labs and the labs came back and without getting too medical on you guys, uh, there, one of the numbers like, you know, indicated that he was like 
extremely dehydrated. And they were like, oh my gosh, yeah, his heart could have stopped. Oh, this is really bad. Um, and so we ended up getting admitted and all those tests were run. And I remember the first day, the, um, the gastroenterologist, the GI doctor came in and he said, you know, I'm going to figure out what's wrong with this kid. Um, you know, I, there's no way that he just stopped eating because that doesn't just happen. And I said, well, he's adopted and he has adoption trauma. And we had been told by our agency that, you know, people in our world that would touch us had no knowledge of this. But up until this point, other than just, you know, comments here and there, but everybody that was important to us, you know, was pretty sensitive to the to the trauma for the most part. Um, our pediatrician, our cardiologist, my parents, so on and so forth, um, understood a lot of this. And but this guy, he was a new doctor, and he very much just said, um, "This doesn't happen. This this doesn't happen." So I'm going to figure out what's wrong with him. And I said, "You know, I would love if you could figure out what's wrong with him because that means we can fix it. But I'm pretty sure you're not going to find anything." But please run every test you can. And so he ran tests for almost five days. And on the, and every day he'd come back and say, well, tomorrow's test is going to show something. And he came back on the fifth day and he said, I've never seen this before. I don't understand. You're right. There's nothing wrong. He just stopped eating. I said, well, sir, have you ever taken care of a child that comes from a third world country and was adopted in a, from an orphanage? He was like, well, no. And I said, well, maybe you should learn something then because <laughs> this is a real thing. So, um, Chave got a, his G tube and which is a feeding tube. And, you know, what we thought was going to be so scary and, you know, all these different things has been a huge, huge blessing for us. Um, since he got that in October, he has gained like six and a half pounds. So he's finally on the growth charts. Um, he looks, he's got these big little cheeks now and, um, He's just really thriving, and we didn't realize that his low energy, we thought his low energy was really more due to his heart, but it ended up, it was really due to the fact that he just didn't have any nutrition, which also made us feel really bad, but he has nutrition now, so he's a little, he's on the move. (laughs) So yeah, so that's the main part of our story. So where are you at now? What is a day in the life for you? Life in our house is pretty normal. We have an active two-year-old that's, you know, all over the place getting into everything, but um, we're having so much fun with him, and um, we love to see him grow and play and everything. You know, while our story has had many mountains, one, that's not everybody's story, but two, we wouldn't change it for anything. He is the light of our world, and we feel so blessed to be his parents. I think you guys really hit the nail on the head when you named this podcast, What Are They Worth? He's literally worth everything to us. So what would you, I think when we were talking, when um, Courtney, when you and I spoke prior to this, you were talking about how sometimes some of the kids will be listed as special needs, but that that varies a lot. And I thought that was really really interesting can you talk about that a little bit and just I mean I thought some of it is like kind of scary because you don't really always have the information but then at the same time you have other information yeah absolutely so special needs programs and this kind of is across the board I know people that have adopted from other countries as well sometimes you don't know what you're getting into um, and that can be scary like Patricia's saying 
Um, but sometimes it can be, you know, a positive thing as well. So we have several friends that have adopted from India that have brought home children um, that had, you know, serious conditions or, or moderate conditions and then ended up either miraculously being cured, maybe it was a God thing, or maybe um, there was a little bit of fudging of the file. So for example, we have um, some friends that um, their child was diagnosed with cerebral palsy and the whole time they were in the matching process, um, she kept showing me pictures and, and videos and I was just like, I just don't know if this child has CP. Um, I mean, I'm not a CP expert, but I just don't see anything. Um, and when she got to the orphanage, she asked the, the director about the CP and the orphanage director said, oh yeah, we just gave her a massage and it went away. Um, and so um, they think that really they just listed her as special needs so that she could get adopted internationally quicker um, rather than going through the long process. Um, but there's other stories too of people. We have uh, several friends that have kids that had cardiac conditions that um, the holes closed and so, you know, didn't require any surgical intervention or anything like that. So what was a little murmur, you know, they came home and they were absolutely fine. So all that to say, and I just want to encourage people that, you know, yes, it, it can be worse. You can find things that maybe you didn't anticipate. Um, but there's many, many stories out there of people that adopted kids and they're much healthier than they anticipated to. Yeah, I think that's probably terrifying for a lot of people. But I think... You know, we talk about this a lot, but just that any of us could birth a child that had disabilities, we could get a foster child. I mean, a lot of times, I, just from my fostering experience, I'm not a therapeutic foster parent, technically, so I'm not supposed to be getting kids who are necessarily high risk or special needs, but alas, they have found me anyway, and so... You know, a lot of times we have these feeble attempts to try and control, you know, like even in your story, like we, you only had a few things you thought that you wouldn't do. And those are the things you end up doing. And it just kind of goes to show that if you're going to do this thing, whether it's foster care or adoption domestically, internationally, however, that honestly, you just kind of have to have open hands <laughs> because it's probably not going to go the way that you necessarily anticipate and you'll probably be surprised that you're more like I love the way that you described it the way that like God showed you over time that he was equipping you I think sometimes we don't realize that we've been equipped for certain things until we're in it and we have to put things to the test or God shows us just in the right timing that no actually I have been giving you some support for this yeah Absolutely. And, and just to touch on what you said about, um, you know, we don't know what our birth children can have. We get that, you know, especially before we adopted our son, we got that a lot. People would say to us, you know, well, you know, what if there's something wrong with the kid? And we're like, well, I mean, likely we probably will experience some physical or mental needs or both. Um, but we also don't know what our DNA makes. So it can make a child with a whole lot of needs. Um, and I think people forget that, that you know, there's no guarantee that a child's not going to have this same condition if if my husband and I birthed him. So, yeah, and it is. I mean, it's certainly a risk to go and pick one, right? Most people, most people pray to avoid 
any problems with their children. So stepping out and saying, I'm actually going to hand select a child that has disabilities. Yeah, that's definitely not the norm. But I mean, I always say, if we don't do it, who's going to? It doesn't mean that everybody, you know, not everybody's going to have that like calling, gifting. Not everybody's going to make that decision, but somebody certainly has to. And if we all discount ourselves, you know, I love what your husband said, like, that's going to be another surgery that he doesn't have parents. And when you think about that, being a child, having special needs, whether they're visible, Mm -hmm. invisible, mental, emotional, whatever, and then going through that without a family, that's, it's tough. Even kids who, um, you know, their stuff's more behavioral and there may be like, not as cute in a picture or anything you you still think about that if I had all that going on and I didn't have someone like how much more difficult would that be absolutely yeah I mean I can't even imagine some of the things my son has gone through to think that you know he did that alone breaks my heart um and that he didn't have somebody to hold his hand through it and every time we go to the emergency departments that's literally all I can think of is just you know honey, I'll hold you. I'll hold you while you have to have this scary thing done again. So, because he hasn't always had that. How, how are you and your husband now? I think a lot of people, like they worry about the strain of stuff like this, like on their marriage and on their, just their life in general. Like, have you guys been able to find a new normal with all of this? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, you know, on our as far as our marriage goes, I don't feel like it stressed us too much. Um, my husband is just a really laid back person. I mean, it's definitely created some stress, but um, I think probably the bigger stressor has been with my job and still mm-hmm. meeting the high demands of all of that, with um, with you know still getting to all those doctor's appointments and all of those therapy appointments. That's been a challenge. Um, and I have had to step back a little bit from my job and reduce some of my hours. Um, I've been blessed to be in a position that I could do that, but it's, you know, that's, it's challenging for sure. And I, one of the things that we have considered is, you know, what does our family look like in the future? Um, and I think, you know, that's definitely something when you have a severe special needs child, you know, you, you have to really think through what that looks like and, we're not sure what that looks like right now. We we hope that God has in his plans for us to adopt a second child. But, um, and we get asked all the time, where is that, you know, which country are you going to adopt from? And we don't know. It could be domestic. Um, we right now feel like if we do adopt, um, domestic might be in our in our calling because we can't travel with Chevet. Can't leave him for two weeks and we can't bring him with us for two weeks. And, you know, there's just a lot of factors that we have to think about. But we also have to think about that other child and, you know, how often are we going to be in the hospital and is that fair to that other child? And are we going to be able to give that child the, the attention that they deserve as well and to meet their needs? So we're just not there yet, but but we hope that after his next heart surgery that God has it in it to, to bring us another child. When is that? Uh, so his next heart surgery will be when he gets to 33 pounds, which if we continue on the growth track that we uh, are currently on, probably in um, like... I don't know, 11 or 12 months. So um, this time next year, definitely scary. Um, my parents have, have tried to convince me to put him on a diet now because <laughs> um, they're scared of surgery. But um, 
but it's definitely, it's necessary and we need to get to that surgery while his heart is still functioning and he's healthy um, so that he can be strong to get through the surgery is really important. So we're hopeful. Well, thank you for doing the hard things and thank you for being an example. Um, Thanks for coming on the show. I really hope that um, people will be inspired and encouraged and to know that it's possible And, you know, I really do think that it's so awesome that God is so big that he could take a child from the other side of the world and move mountains to bring you guys together. I just think that's so special um, and just like really encourages me and I think should encourage all of us that like God does see us. He knows those intricate things and he's will stop at nothing to make sure that we have what we need and also sometimes we are a part of what someone else might need um so i just thank you for reaching out to us and being willing to share and if anybody is in a similar situation as courtney and feels like you guys could be a support uh please reach out and we will connect you guys because i know um the story is kind of unique and you guys need each other so happy to be a connecting block Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on the show.